Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Hungering for Food That Doesn't Exist. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 3rd, 2013, the third Sunday in Lent. Are you happy? What would make you happy? A bigger house? A better job? Rocco Bellick's documentary film Happy begins in a muddy slum of Calcutta. There we meet a rickshaw driver named Manju Singh. Manju exudes happiness. My home is good, he says. We live well. He then points to some sticks covered by a tarp. True, he admits, during the monsoon season, one side of the tarp leaks. Nonetheless, says Manju, and I quote, When I come home from work and my son greets me, I feel like I'm not poor, but the richest person in the world. My neighbors are good. We stay together. We're all friends. Bellick's film then travels to 14 countries, including Brazil, Bhutan, Denmark, and Japan, where they actually have a special word, karoshi, for people who die from overwork. Various experts theorize about what makes people happy. They consider the epidemic of loneliness and boredom in the richest countries of the world. So for those of us pounded day after day by propaganda whose sole purpose is to make us discontent, I recommend this film. I watched it on Netflix streaming. It's a powerful reprisal of an ancient question that the prophet Isaiah asked almost 3,000 years ago in this week's lectionary. Why do you spend money on what is not bread? in your labor on what does not satisfy. But that's exactly what we're continually tempted to do. Consider a character in the novel Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. About half of Infinite Jest takes place at the Enfield Tennis Academy, a boarding school where kids hone their skills in the hopes of making it to what they call the show the professional tennis circuit. In fact, accepting a tennis scholarship to college is an admission of failure. Lamont Chu, for example, is obsessed with tennis fame. He imagines pictures of himself in tennis magazines, television announcers analyzing his stroke in hushed tones, and corporations paying him to wear their logos. He's so obsessed he can't eat, sleep, or even pee. His performance is suffering. Ambition is eating him alive. And so he goes to the ETA guru named Lyle. Lamont admits his rabid ambition to Lyle. He's ashamed of his hunger for hype. He feels lost and lonely. Lyle is the perfect listener. 
the supplicant feels both nakedly revealed and sheltered somehow from all possible judgment. Lyle never condescends, but he never candy-coats the truth either. Trust me, he tells Lamont, the pros whom you envy do not feel what you burn for. They are trapped, just like you are. Is this supposed to be good news? asks Lamont. This is awful news. Lamont, are you willing to listen to a remark about what is true? The truth will set you free, but not until it is finished with you. You have been snared by something untrue. You were deluded. But this is good news. You burn with hunger for food that does not exist. This is good news? It is the truth. The burning doesn't go away? What fire dies when you feed it? Would I sound ungrateful if I said this doesn't make me feel very much better at all? Lamont, you suffer with the stunted desire caused by one of the oldest lies in the world. Do not believe the photographs. Fame is not the exit from any cage. So I'm stuck in the cage from either side? Fame or tortured envy of fame? There's no way out? Lamont, you might consider how escape from a cage must surely require, foremost, awareness of the fact of the cage. In Luke's Gospel this week, Jesus responds to two stories of sudden and premature death. When Pilate slaughtered some Galileans during their religious rituals, Instead of blaming the governor, some people blame the victims. Similarly, in a bizarre accident of fate, when a tower collapsed and killed 18 people in Siloam, some people concluded that they must have been worse sinners than the average person. No, said Jesus, don't demonize your neighbor. Don't presume to invoke God's judgment on someone else. You can't purchase God's favor by projecting your fears onto others. And then, as he often did, Jesus flipped the story so that it's moral applied to the living rather than to the dead. Jesus compared his audience to barren fruit trees. Unlike the victims of Galilee and Siloam, for whom time had run out, they still enjoyed a future with choices. If they let the tragedy speak to them, instead of using it as a vain attempt to validate their moral superiority, they could rearrange the furniture of their lives, turn the page, adjust their priorities, and make changes while life was left. But the window of opportunity wouldn't stay open forever, Jesus reminded them. Mere length of years was no guarantee of a fruitful life, just as premature death could never diminish it. Sooner or later, the tree will be cut down. And so in the Old Testament reading this week, Isaiah asks, Why spend money on what is not bread, 
and your labor on what does not satisfy. That's spiritual deficit spending of the worst sort, accumulating depreciating assets that lose value every day. When the clock stops and time ends, Jesus said, your life will not consist of your possessions, the wealth you hoarded, the vanity you perfected, or the power you wielded. There's a deep hunger and thirst in all of us, says the psalmist this week, a palpable longing for human nourishment that no amount of power or money, no prestigious job, nor any glamorous home in an upscale neighborhood can satisfy. Your anxieties will not disappear by winning the lottery tomorrow. A new lover will not bring true love. Thank God for the Lenten season, a time in which Jesus warns us, unless you change, you will perish. This isn't a condescending judgment. As Wallace's novel shows, it's a tragic statement of fact. But Lent also comes with Isaiah's invitation. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me, Hear me, that your soul may live. Rocco Bellick's film, Happy, ends where it began, in the city of Calcutta, only this time with a former German banker named Andy Wimmer, who's worked at Mother Teresa's home for the destitute and dying for 17 years. And why? because it nourishes his soul like his former life never could. <clears throat> For books this week, I review a title called Vanished Kingdoms, The Rise and Fall of States and Nations. The author is Norman Davies, New York Viking, 2011, 830 pages. In September 1991, my family moved to Moscow State University, where I began a four-year stint as a visiting professor in what was then called the Department of Scientific Atheism. Three months later, we were in the American Embassy celebrating Christmas Eve, December 24th, when Mikhail Gorbachev went on national television and resigned. One week later, we stood in Red Square as the Soviet flag was lowered for the last time and the flag of the new Russian Federation was raised. After a short life that lasted from 1924 to 1991, but which nevertheless encompassed the largest territory on Earth, one of the world's two superpowers vanished overnight. Norman Davies' sweeping history considers 15 case studies of what he calls state death. Not just revolution or regime, regime change, but the more dramatic phenomenon of states that cease to exist. 
His massive study is only the tiny tip of an enormous iceberg. In a footnote, he directs readers to a website that lists 207 extinct states, a number which he says is a definite understatement. His book begins with Alaric the Visigoth, ruler of all in the 5th century, then ends with what he calls the ultimate vanishing act of the Soviet Union. How do states die? A final chapter suggests a pattern or typology. Five different types, implosion, conquest, merger, liquidation, and then what he calls infant mortality. The examples of the Soviet Union in Rome remind us that even the mightiest states die. The Bible laments the destruction of Israel by Assyria and Babylon. It celebrates the downfall of Rome. The prophecy of Daniel considers the rise and fall of global powers. All political power is transient, says Norman Davies. He writes, all states and nations, however great, bloom for a season and then are replaced. To imagine that your own state is an exception, he says, is whistling in the dark. In addition to Davies' meticulous research, this handsome volume contains nearly 200 illustrations, maps, figures, and plates, along with 50 pages of footnotes. Norman Davies' Vanished Kingdoms For film this week, I review The Dust Bowl by Ken Burns from the year 2012. This four-hour miniseries in two separate discs by the master of Americana, Ken Burns, documents the worst ecological disaster in American history. From about 1930 to 1940, a decade-long drought plus bad farming practices, caused what became known as the Dust Bowl. When wheat prices rose, farmers planted more wheat. Then when the Depression hit and prices plummeted, they planted still more wheat in the hopes of recouping their losses. Then came the apocalyptic dust storms, cap captured by Ken Burns in both still photos and in movies from those days. Houses were buried. Livestock died or were deliberately killed. Plagues of grasshoppers and rabbits made things worse. Respiratory illnesses killed many. People on the East Coast wiped dust off their cars. Large numbers moved to California, as documented by Steinbeck, while others stuck it out. Massive government intervention, eventual rain, and new farming practices finally ended the disaster. Burns documents the Dust Bowl by letting elderly Americans who were young children back then share their vivid memories. This is oral history at its best. The Dust Bowl by Ken Burns, two separate discs, a four-hour miniseries. <clears throat>
for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Marianne Bernard. It's called Resurrection. Long, long, long ago, way before this winter's snow first fell upon these weathered fields, I used to sit and watch and feel and dream of how the spring would be, when through the winter's stormy sea she'd raise her green and growing head, her warmth would resurrect the dead. Long before this winter's snow, I dreamt of this day's sunny glow, and thought somehow my pain would pass with winter's pain, and peace like grass would simply grow. But the pain's not gone. It's still as cold and hard and long as lonely pain has ever been. It cuts so deep in fear within. Long before this winter's snow, I ran from pain, looked high and low for some fast way to get around its hurt and cold. I'd have found, if I had looked at what was there, that things don't follow fast or fair, that life goes on and times do change, and grass does grow despite life's pains. <clears throat> Long before this winter's snow, I thought that this day's sunny glow, the smiling children and growing things, and flowers bright were brought by spring. Now I know the sun does shine, that children smile, and from the dark cold grime a flower comes, it groans yet sings, and through its pain Peace begins. Mary Ann Bernard, a favorite poem of mine, Resurrection. Thank you for joining us at Journey with Jesus for the third Sunday in Lent, March the 3rd, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.